Two and a Half Admins, episode 107. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. The W3C have been trying to transition to HTTPS by default for their website and various resources, but they keep delaying it because there is too much legacy software out there that just can't do HTTPS. So this is an interesting case where the W3C's website has some resources on it that are referenced by everything. So if you remember HTML5 from the olden days there, and it had that DTD at the top that described the schema of what HTML tags were allowed, and it always had this URL in it that points to w3c.org, was those resources what we're talking about here. And so every time you're validating an XML document or parsing the scattered web page and so on, you would possibly go to this W3C website and download that schema file. And if they suddenly make that have a redirect at all, that might not work anymore because it might not be a full HTTP client. It's something that's kind of dumber, or it just might not be able to do HTTPS. Or in this case, at least if it's that old, it probably can't do a new enough version of HTTPS to be worth it anyway, right? If we're talking like SSL v3 or even TLS 1.0, that's not going to be something we support anyway. And so for some of these cases, it might actually be better to continue to serve those resources over HTTP than to continue to offer HTTPS at the older versions of HTTPS that are less secure. Because you're better off not being secure at all than being secure in a way that's not actually secure, right? If we're doing HTTPS, but it's on the super oldest version, that's actually probably worse because it gives you this false sense of security. But it's it's a real problem with internet standards that once these things are out there, you can't easily change things, right? This is why we've never been able to improve the the email protocol to stop spam properly, because whatever you come up with, the rest of the internet isn't using that. Now, let's be honest here. As far as the spam problem goes, the majority of that problem isn't technical at all. It's that the appetite to curb spam is spotty at best. Users don't like it. There's an awful lot of money in it, and that money tends to speak. Absent any protocol changes whatsoever, it really wouldn't be that hard to put legislation in place and actually enforce it to vastly curb the amount of spam, to limit the number of you know physical network places it could be coming from and just be like, either you clean up your spam problem or we're not accepting anything from you. There's nothing that isn't doable about that. The problem is that every time it gets proposed, somebody with a lot of money finds ways to defang it. That's a lot of what we're seeing here as well. It boils down to somebody who, there are a lot of somebody's out there who have spent a lot of money on ancient systems that they allowed to accumulate tech debt because who cares about tech debt? Don't care. Bought the stupid thing. It's in the stupid basement. It does its stupid thing. I never want to think about it or spend money on it again. And then they holler 20 years later at the idea that they might need to update that thing. Uh, we see exactly this kind of complaint in the register article that was covering this with, you know, there was a register reader saying that refreshing Java was not their cup of tea. And, you know, they're talking about they've got a massive enterprise Java app that they're partly responsible for sporting and that the Java app depends on the plain HTTP version of, you know, fetching these schemas and there would be updates required, you know, to make it work with HTTPS. And I'm sorry, but a lot of my response to that is going to be, Wah! HTTPS didn't just show up on the scene yesterday, you know? It's been like a decade at least, hasn't it, since, you know, we broke 90% of all web traffic being HTTPS? 
probably pretty close. It was whenever Netflix switched all the video streaming to HTTPS to keep ISPs from knowing which movie you were watching. So yeah, it's yeah. been a while. Maybe not quite a decade, but getting close. Wasn't it Let's Encrypt that really pushed it? Yes. Well, Let's Encrypt what made it possible for personal websites and so on to do it without having to spend a bunch of money. That's the thing for me that made it be, you know, there's no reason not to have HTTPS now. Yeah. Whereas before it, I was like, well, there's a bunch of stuff where I just don't feel it's worth me paying for a certificate or just the hassle of doing a certificate and updating it once a year. But Let's Encrypt forces you to automate it. And then suddenly it didn't require any effort anymore (laughs) beyond the initial setup. Yeah. And I suppose that means that was the point where most websites became HTTPS. But that doesn't mean that most traffic became HTTPS at that point because it was all the small sites that very few people actually visited that changed over at that point. Right. Or when they do, they're not doing the same volume as your Facebooks and your Googles and so on. Yeah, yeah. But I can kind of see the point here that these resources, like the XML schema, do I really need encryption for that? Do I really want to waste the CPU cycles on millions of devices to download that? It's not that much, but at the same time, it's like, why is the W3C having to pay for bandwidth for these 20-year-old apps to keep downloading these schemas? Maybe the schema wasn't meant to change, and maybe it should have been cached in the app, and we shouldn't be wasting the internet to download these for 20 years in perpetuity. Yeah, there's only so much internet to go around. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this still kind of comes down to be willing to update your crap. Understand your stack, be able to change your stack, And if you have custom code, you need to own it and you need to understand that you need to be able to maintain it. If you didn't own it and it's not custom and you bought it, then you need to be aware of what the likelihood is that the company you bought it from is still going to be around. You know, what kind of support do they offer? Like basically it just boils down to like tech is something you have to actually think about and plan around like every other core part of your business. And if you're not doing that, you're doing business wrong and it's not the rest of the world's fault that, you know, then you have problems and you might have to spend money later. Yeah. There are times where things are more complicated. Like, Some of these large Java apps, if it's running at a bank where there's regulations and very stiff penalties, if something goes down, I understand that that requires a lot of extra testing and so on. But like Jim said, it's not like nobody saw HTTPS coming. You just put it off for 10 years and now are being like, poor me. Well, no, (laughs) if every time you make a change, you have to get your software recertified, you should have a plan where, you know, we're going to roll all these updates out like every two or three years or something. And we're, we plan for the fact that it's going to cost us this pile of money to get it recertified. Or we know that we're going to have to build out all these tests and test the hell out of it before we deploy it. But it doesn't mean you can just not do it because it's going to cost you some money. Like Jim said, you just have to have planned for this. And if you haven't, you better start planning now. So they did a, a test. They switched over for eight hours on August 1st and let it run with HTTPS only to kind of have some stuff break and have people report it. And then they did it again for about 27 hours on August 18th, but it caused all kinds of problems to get reported. Originally, they planned to do a whole 72 hours on the second date, but they cut it off after 27 because they got so many complaints about it impacting production services because failure to download those XML schemas or it even broke Microsoft's static driver verifier tool, which verifies the source code for Windows kernel mode drivers and is required to like sign the new drivers and make sure that the driver you have matches the source code it claimed it was from. But because that uses that XML schema validation, it was down. And it seems like 
a lot of people have this technical debt sometimes that they didn't even know that they had. But isn't the way to solve the problem to just make the switch and force people to fix it? Like we had with the browsers, they just started giving big red warnings and people had to sort their shit out. Well, that's basically the stuff they're taking. It was like they did August 1st, they did eight hours to cause some turbulence and cause people to notice, but then put it back to give them some time to fix it. And that one seemed to go okay. But when they started doing it for more than just eight hours and catching people at work or leaving things broken long enough that people bothered to investigate why they were broken, suddenly they got a lot more. I would just like to point out it's been seven years since Firefox announced its plans to deprecate HTTP entirely in the browser. That happened in 2015. I'm glad that that's not actually happened yet, though. It has happened. It has absolutely been deprecated in Firefox and Chrome alike. Yeah, you try going to an HTTP site and you have to click through a lot of warnings. No, it just loaded up and it's got a disconnection, not secure thing. Maybe I've changed my settings on my machine. Yeah. I think maybe I did because I remember trying to control a switch and the switch didn't have HTTPS and the browser wasn't letting me in. And I'm like, David, we're not having this. (laughs) Get out of my way. Yeah, and Chrome's even worse as well. Like sometimes it doesn't even give you the option by default. Or, you know, you have to click three different things to find where they hid the option. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they keep moving it to mess with your finger memory. Yeah. But it reminds me back when I was in college, we had this internal website called Ozone or something where a lot of our course material was. And they just had a self-sign certificate because Let's Encrypt didn't exist in 2003. And you know, we commented on how basically they trained this entire generation of people in web design, software engineering, and network engineering to just blindly hit the, yeah, it's okay that this is a, not a trusted certificate. Uh, and it was like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have made that that easy. And then the browsers made it harder, but it mostly just annoys me. <laughs> and yeah, Alan, you you must have changed some settings because I've I've still got some network equipment that I have to access over plain HTTP. And I always have to click through the like, you know, this is not safe, blah, 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 in order to get to it. Well, I think when I turned it off, is they had gone maybe a little too far by default where like it was not possible to get to this switch. It would just be like, no, it doesn't do HTTPS, so no. And I'm like, don't tell me no. (laughs) I think they've relaxed it a little bit and, you know, you can eventually get through it now. In the default settings, you can do some HTTP without getting a warning. But basically, it's if you get anything other than a 301 or a 302, you're going to have to click through warnings. Like if you go to HTTPGoogle.com, Google.com does answer and it will 301 you to HTTPSGoogle.com. The browser will let all that happen without complaining. Actually, if you've been to Google before and it has an HSTS, it probably shouldn't let you go. Anyway, point being, still, you can get through a 301 or a 302 redirect and it won't flash up any warnings. It will just take you to the secure version of the same domain. But if you try to actually load any data, anything from you know HTTP 200 or whatever, then no, you're not seeing anything until you click through the warnings, unless you have manually disabled them. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. 
Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some feedback then. Aruni says, In episode 94, Jim mentioned the drawbacks of Let's Encrypt and CertBot. He said, For multiple domains on a single host, CertBot gets a single cert for every domain on the box, and a random domain is assigned as the main name of the certificate. I believe he was mistaken. You absolutely can have many different certificates for different domains on the same box, which get stored in Etsy Let's Encrypt slash live slash domain dot TLD by simply running CertBot multiple times with different domains you want separated. CertBot will fetch a separate certificate for each invocation. As for using SANS to tie multiple names into a single cert, you can also choose which one gets assigned the CN by having your choice of CN be the first domain argument in the CertBot command. From the CertBot documentation, for multiple domains, you can use multiple dash D flags or enter a comma separated list of domains as a parameter. The first domain provided will be the subject CN of the certificate and all domains will be subject alternative names on the certificate. So you can see from the documentation how it appears that that's the only option, not that you just invoke CertBot a bunch of separate times with different paths and different domains and it will actually make completely separate certificates. So I think it's mostly a documentation problem. Yeah, basically what it boils down to is you have to invoke CertBot on multiple config files. So instead of just having a single config file in Etsy for CertBot, you've got multiples either for each domain or for groups of domains or whatever. It is absolutely doable, but doing things that way kind of undoes some of what makes CertBot so nice to use in the first place. Because the typical way to use CertBot is you just run it and it asks you, so you want me to do this for all these domains that you've got on this server, which it automatically finds and enumerates. And you say, yeah, encrypt all my stuff, dog. And it does it and it's easy and it's great and it's nice. While you can absolutely invoke it multiple times with multiple versions of your config file and all those things will work, that now becomes like a thing that you've got to fairly carefully manage. And don't get me wrong, it is still absolutely better than having to manage individual like paid for certificates that you buy from, you know, a registrar, Namecheap or GoDaddy or whoever. It's still definitely better than that, but it undoes a lot of the promise of it's easy, it's fun, it's one and it's done that you kind of start out approaching CertBot with. Yeah, I've mostly just been using Acme.sh and it is a bit more like what you were describing the, the bad case for CertBot where I just set up a cron job for each group of domains that I want to be separate, but it's written in shell script too. But it has a nice API to deal. It It talks to my registrar directly and populates the DNS entries for me to get everything done. And so uh, it makes me happy. You have to be awkward, don't you, Alan? You have to use uh, the other alternative always. Like, oh, you can't use Linux. You've got to use FreeBSD. You can't use CertBot. You've got to use Acme. Well, I just like the tool that I could read the source code of and I don't read Python. So CertBot wasn't as interesting to me. <laughs> And Acme just had better documentation at the time. Like even CertBots now, the documentation very much guides you to Jim's original conclusion that that was the only way it really worked. Well, I just think you're awkward. I am awkward, but not for those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, those are kind of unrelated issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Matthias says, 
I wrote in a couple of weeks ago about using Grafana for monitoring, and Jim and Alan seemed confused about how alerting works. The way it works in Grafana is Grafana runs a query periodically against a data source, and if it passes a threshold, is missing data, or is throwing an error, then it will send a notification to the contact point you defined, which can be a simple email, webhook, or you can pipe it to their on-call solution. This works on most data sources that you can query in Grafana, so along with metrics like low disk space or no data from a host, you can also get alerts for things like 5xx errors in web server logs or syslog has a message with a smart error. Yeah, normally you wouldn't have a Grafana data source that was just like, is the status of my pool online or degraded? And that's why normally I think about Grafana as being specifically numbers I'm going to graph and and so on. And, you know, I might get alerting when the transaction rate on this machine is higher or lower than it's supposed to be. I just never really thought of using it for some of the other stuff, like, is this VDEV in a state other than online? I thought of it. It's not that I believed it was impossible to use Grafana for you know, pass-fail alerting. It's just not the best tool for the job. Nagios is a lot more directly adapted to doing that. Once you start saying, oh, well, you can do this and you can do that and you can do the other. Well, I mean, I could just shell into every single box and have like a script that I wrote do whatever I want it to do whenever a thing happens. But that's... <laughs> there are better frameworks in place for doing that. That's kind of what it boils down to here. Yes, you can monitor things using Grafana. Is it the best way to do monitoring specifically rather than recording metrics over time? It really isn't. You can use it that way if you want to. I don't recommend it because there are better solutions. Yeah, oftentimes trying to make one thing be the be-all and end-all means you end up with a solution that's not quite as nice. I don't like the inclusion of like, oh, it can it can just email you. Don't do email alerting. There are so many ways for an email to not reach you that the only way to be certain that you're getting your email alerts or not is to have it email you periodically whether or not anything is wrong. And if you have it do that, you will stop not reading them because you'll train yourself that emails just mean everything is fine and you won't look at it. These are lessons that Al and I have both had to learn the hard way at earlier points in our careers. And the big thing that keeps me sticking with Nagios is that the alerting is fantastic and does not require email. And I don't have to write anything or develop anything. I can literally just install ANAG on my phone and have automatic in my pocket. It buzzes when something is wrong alerting and it's reliable and it works and it's not a whole lot of work to set up. And that's what I'm looking for. Right. And it's got a decade of the tuning on the flapping detection so that I don't get mm -hmm. constant alerts of something going up and down. I just get told it's having a problem. It didn't get better and then have a problem again. It's just flapping, <laughs> which means the alert hasn't cleared. It's still a problem. And there's all the configuration options for, you know, if their flap detection isn't good enough, you can make it more sensitive. You can make it less sensitive. You can handle flapping services in different ways other than the default if you want to. All these things are built into the framework. There are person centuries of experience specifically in the field of monitoring infrastructure and making sure everything is good with it in that platform that really aren't there with like, you know, time series graphing platforms intended to let you look for issues and like a steady constant flow of metrics and see how things are changing over time. You can use Nagios to do those things too. 
and you shouldn't because it's not very good at it. Just like I say, you really shouldn't use Grafana for reporting on uh, pass fail is a little too simplistic, but like the majority of your tests are going to be effectively a pass fail and you want to get alerted if they fail. It's what Nagios is really good at. It can do metric accumulation. It's not good at it and you should use Grafana or something else for that. So use the right tool for the right job is what it comes down to. Okay, John says, was hoping to share something for that poor soul stuck supporting Silverlight. Using the Chrome browser with IE tab extension will allow Silverlight to load on Windows 11 boxes regardless of IE standalone implementation. It's my understanding that the developer packaged enough components to allow this thing to work despite our outward ban of native IE 11 execution. Real answer is to get a better developer, but that ship may have sailed for the original requester. Well, Josh is the original requester and he wrote in to say, I wanted to add some clarity to my previous email. It's not that the dev won't learn something new, but more about them not feeling the need to update. The web apps are for internal use and the dev and product team feel like internal tools are not a priority over the customer products. That being said, almost everyone internally uses these web apps to do their job. Payroll, accounting, HR onboarding, etc. Since Windows 10 is still in support until 2025 and Microsoft hasn't force-removed Internet Explorer, we are still technically able to work. I have policies in place that lock down Internet Explorer to only be able to access these web pages. I just fear the day Microsoft silently uninstalls Internet Explorer from all the machines with updates. Windows 10 is supported until 2025 means you have until 2025 to rebuild these apps. It's probably going to take most of that time if you start today, so you can't keep putting it off. You know, what did we say a couple weeks ago in an episode about technical debt? Pay your tech debt down. (laughs) Yeah. Just because it still barely kind of works today doesn't, it's like, payroll depends on this. Maybe you don't get paid until you make it work on something that will run on Windows 11. You will suffer much less pain keeping it working every couple of years than trying to put it off for 10 years and then fix it. And it, Silverlight, I'm guessing it's been more than 10 years since these were originally written, or will have been by 2025 anyway. And yeah, you just don't keep putting it off. It just gets more and more expensive the longer you put it off. Sorry you picked the wrong horse for that track when it comes to Silverlight, but you have to move off of it. And the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon, we really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to 2.5admins.com support, and remember for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. 
And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Stephen writes, I'm a newer network admin who hasn't had the opportunity to play with too many enterprise-level switches. My org is roughly 75 in-office users, computers, phones, and some users have additional resources at their desks. It runs eight decently beefy on-prem servers. We're looking to replace our aging Dell enterprise switches, and for the best part of six months, the ones we're looking at, Dell PowerSwitch N2200 series, have been out of stock. It would be eight 48-port PoE switches, with most of the ports able to supply voltage to the VoIP phones. Ubiquity stack has a pretty GUI, but functionality and user-friendliness would be ideal. Do you have any recommendations? We're open to switching vendors. They need to be good for the next decade and have good support. We're not pinching pennies, but we don't want to just burn cash either. Well, first of all, if you want functionality, Ubiquity switches are just right out because they offer almost none. Also, the the one I've been trying to get has been out of stock as well. Mm, Yeah. The low-priced all 10 gig version that I have a couple of, trying to get more, and they're months of back order. Yeah. As far as, you know, a recommended vendor, I feel like I'm kind of wearing a groove in this, but TP-Link is your answer for switches. They are inexpensive. They are fully featured. They are reliable. They've been around for a long time. There's no reason to think they won't be around for a long time. Look them up. Uh, I would recommend the Jetstream line for it's given that this is enterprise. I'm sure you'll want the, you know, the full functionality support, all the VLAN spanning security features, what have you. And to get the full set of functionality, you need Jetstream. They do have several lines of switches. If you see TP-Link smart switch, they're not smart. You should just do an S smart dumb G on that basically because the smart switch line is limited functionality, nowhere near as much as you get in the Jetstream. Yeah, generally smart switch is an unmanaged switch with a web GUI so you can kind of manage the very basic features. It's a managed switch that only has a web interface and limited features as opposed to you know a real enterprise switch. But if you want like the full QoS functionality and management and security stuff and you know things like being able to bind DHCP answers to only a trusted port, you know, to prevent issues with somebody bringing a, a rogue DHCP device onto your network, all that kind of thing, what you want are the Jetstream switches. They will be much less expensive than what you're accustomed to buying. That does not mean they are lower quality. I literally couldn't even begin to count the number of TP-Link switches I've got out there in the field because I've been using them for well over a decade and have no problems with any of them. Speaking of decade, what do you think of buying a switch and trying to actually wring a decade out of it, including the support? Does that seem reasonable or should they probably consider planning for a replacement sooner than that? I think practically speaking, it is usually pretty reasonable. I don't generally see switch models just going completely out of support. It's pretty uncommon in my experience to see like massive security problems that like must be addressed with like, you know, a firmware update on the switch. Different vendors will be more or less likely to offer updated firmware. I don't, I haven't seen any of them that I would say offer frequent firmware updates. Usually it's feature driven, not, you know, security or or, uh, like bug fix driven. I think switches have such a relatively limited function set compared to, you know, routers and, and firewalls and what have you, that it's a little easier for the factory to get the QA right before they push it out the door. And so you tend to be more likely to have something that is fully functional and not buggy actually arrive on your doorstep that isn't going to need a sudden patch because somebody missed a thing and it absolutely has to get addressed, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking, like, is the connection speed going to be the same in 10 years? But I guess gigabit's been around for more than that long. It's kind of been the standard. We're kind of close to an inflection point where it doesn't make sense to buy only gigabit for much longer. But it also depends on the use case. Well, if you're buying 48 port, you're not going to be buying only gigabit anyway, because you're absolutely going to have some 10 gig SFP plus uplink ports. Typically on the TP-Link switches, you're going to have four SFP plus uplink ports on uh, a 48 port switch. I'm not sure whether or not they have any available with more than that. You can certainly get, like if you want just the SFP plus ports, you can get that on smaller switches. You don't have to tack on 48 full ports of, you know, regular RJ45 with that. I think it's fairly reasonable to expect to run a switch until like something actually burns out and you have to discard it or until there's an entirely new protocol that requires a hardware upgrade. Yeah, and beyond looking at things like 2.5 gigabit, anything going beyond that is probably going to require changing the cables and the walls of the office anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, not something you really, you don't buy a switch to future-proof for that contingency because that's that doesn't make sense. We've about reached as much as what you can expect to accomplish out of even the best, most modern Ethernet cabling. And just I think physics has gotten us about to the end of what that medium can accomplish. If you've got a short enough run, you can do 10 gig over uh, you know Ethernet with RJ45 termination. But here's the thing a lot of people don't realize. It actually costs you considerably more money, and it sucks. So <laughs> don't do that. Basically, if you want faster than 1 gig, uh, you really ought to be looking at running fiber. What about Cisco? Is that just massive overkill in terms of price? I feel like if our listener wanted to buy Cisco, they would already have bought Cisco. Right. I would not buy Cisco. I'm not in love with their particular management interface style. There are a lot of people who swear by it. I am one of the people who is a lot more likely to swear at it. And then when you look at the actual prices you've got to pay to get that name on it and have this proprietary language that you've got to learn in order to program those switches and those routers, I am just absolutely not a fan. I want no part of it. Yeah, I think most of the people that swear by it is because they learned that proprietary language and that's the thing they know how to do. Mm -hmm. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.